You are listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Mission family. Um, It's a privilege to be able to share God's word with you today. We're going to be continuing this sermon series on the best is yet to come. And maybe some of you have been thinking about this the same way that I have, uh, where there's this little temptation when we say this phrase, the best is yet to come, to maybe go a direction that's not necessarily where God would want us to go with it, right? There's a little combination between um, wishful thinking on our part of, uh, of maybe almost like the prosperity gospel, right? Where if we just do the right things, God will bless us, and I'll sort of tell him how he should bless us, right? It's a little bit of a tendency to want to define what the best is and have a timeline that's really short. Lord, the best is yet to come, but I'd really like it to be this afternoon. You know, so that's a little bit. So I want to look at scripture and sort of flesh this out a little bit about how we can make sense of this expression, the best is yet to come. But I want to start with just two stories. My friend Barry um, has a daughter and a son-in-law and they discovered that they were uh, pregnant with a child, and um, er, there was some testing that had to go on early on, and they uh, found that there were some significant health issues with the baby that she was carrying. And um, it was, in fact, there was very little likelihood that this baby would live much beyond the birth. It's a very sad, difficult situation for them, and the doctors determined that if they could induce labor a couple months early, that, that was the one chance they had that this baby may live. In the first eight hours of this baby's life, um, everything is going along well. And you could almost sense the uh, excitement on the part of the parents that maybe this is going to be a miracle. Maybe something great's going to happen. And then things turned. And within 24 to 36 hours, that baby had passed away. We think in a situation like that, how uncomforting the expression, the best of yet to come, feels, right? Another story, my wife and I, when uh, she was pregnant with Michaela, we were, um, I was actually running my own business at the time, and I'd like to think I was successful at everything but making money. Um, In fact, the year she was born, the year that Michaela was born, our adjusted gross income was $5,000. Now, I know that was a while ago, but it still was not very much money. We were poor. It was, it was very, very difficult time for us. And I remember after finding this news out that we were expecting our first child, I remember driving along in the car, pounding my fist on the steering wheel, crying out to God, Lord, I'm doing everything that you want me to do. I'm supporting these organizations that are are doing your work. Why is it so difficult? And part of the reason we were in the situation that we were, and why even the adjusted gross income was as low as it was, is I had two clients that owed us close to $40,000 that had not paid their bills. And eventually I'd written it off, given up on it, and that was that. We go on, Michaela's born, and... uh, um, you know, we're piecing things together, and uh, I'd actually was, I'd, I'd given up on getting that money, and one day in the mail, two checks arrived, like within a few days of each other, and both of these clients, even though I'd written off the, the uh, bill amount, this is years later, you know, a couple years later, they both paid, 
And what was interesting about it was we were able to use that money as a down payment on buying a home. And as I look back on it, especially in light of this sermon, I was thinking that was the best is yet to come. If I'd received that money when it was due, I'd have plowed it back into the business and, you know, that would have gotten us through and would have felt great about it. And instead, it was sort of able to be a blessing for us later on. So I want to look at this expression, uh, the best is yet to come, and see if we can make sense of it from Scripture. I want to start with the story of Gideon. Gideon is one of the judges in the Old Testament. And this is found in Judges chapter 6. You might remember the judges were these political military rulers uh, over the land of Israel. This is after the Israelites had left Egypt, conquered Canaan, and were in the promised land again. And uh, the, uh, this is before there was a king, though. And so God would raise up these individuals called judges at different times to deal with different challenges that they were facing. And during the time of Gideon, the challenge was this group called the Midianites. And the Midianites would be coming through the land of Israel and pillaging and, and taking livestock and, uh, and just causing havoc within the land. And God calls Gideon to be his judge. And the interesting thing about it is Gideon was not the most likely of individuals for God to choose, right? He actually says uh, that he was... The, their tribe was the least of the tribes, and that his, his family was the least of the families of the tribes of Manasseh, and that he was the least of the, his own family. So this was an unlikely suspect to become a judge. But God calls him, God chooses him, and then after a series of events, uh, he's led to put out a clarion call to the people of Israel to say, come gather together, we're going to create an army, and we're going to take on these Midianites. We're going to clean this scourge from our land. And so he puts out the call, and 30, 32,000 troops respond to it. 32,000 men come, and they're ready to do battle against the Midianites. And you can just picture Gideon in that moment. Yes, the best is yet to come. And God says, whoa, no, not so fast. So address those troops. Tell them if they're nervous, if they're scared, they can go home. 22,000 people go home. So Gideon's left with this army of 10,000 individuals. And he must have thought, well, I guess the best is yet to come. But this is getting a little bit more you know, nervous from my perspective, right? And so he said, well, we're ready. Let's go into battle. And God says, oh, not so fast, you're going to go down, you're going to take your whole army down to this stream, and uh, any of those that bend down, put their face down into the water to drink water, you're going to send them home, and you're only going to keep the ones that scoop up the water with their hands to their mouth. And Gideon's left with 300 men. And he had to be thinking, you know, all right, Lord, this is getting a little ridiculous. You know, I, I think we could have done this with 32,000. I'm not really sure that we can do this with 300. And God has a plan, though, for him. He uh, goes and they surround the Midianite camp. They have trumpets. They have lanterns or, uh, or lights. And they have pictures over those, of those lights. They break them. There's, the sky is lit up. They blow these trumpets. And chaos ensues in the camp of the Midianites. And the Midianites begin to kill each other. And uh, the, the Israelites are given the victory that day. This is my first point with the best is yet to come. God acts in ways that bring him glory. 
There was no other answer. This was the least likely of individuals to be a judge. Choosing a strategy that had no sense from an earthly perspective, yet God gives the victory. This isn't an ego thing for God. God's you know, not just, oh yes, somehow he expects glory. That's the nature of who he is and the nature of who we are as human beings. One of the great historical documents of the Christian church is what's called the Westminster Catechism. And it begins with this question, what's the chief end? What's the chief purpose, the highest purpose of man? And it's to give God glory. So God acts in ways that bring him glory. We see this as well in the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11. You might remember Jason spoke on this about three weeks ago. And in John chapter 11, we have this story where Lazarus, who's a friend of Jesus, takes ill. And um, he, they send a message. His sisters send a message to Jesus. Your friend Lazarus is ill. Come because we know that you can heal him. And Jesus delays his coming. And we see this in John chapter 11, verse 4. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus's sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So when we're wondering how the best is yet to come, it's going to be all about things that bring God glory. Second point. We're going to jump back into a different story in Scripture. It's the story of Joseph in uh, Genesis 38, 39, 40, in that area uh, of the book of Genesis. Joseph was the favored son of a guy named Jacob. And his brothers were a little bit jealous of his position within the family. And Jacob uh, gives his son Joseph this really sweet coat uh, made of many colors. And that sort of sends his brothers over the edge. And they get upset and they decide they're going to do away with their brother. And uh, they throw him down into a well uh, they take his coat that he had, they smear animal blood on it, and they tell Jacob that the son has passed away, that Joseph is, is dead. And we're going to make this story a little bit different. He's in this well, and you're there with him, okay? And you're like, Joseph, don't worry, buddy. The best is yet to come. And Joseph is in that moment, and he's probably thinking, well, man, I had it pretty good. I was the favored son of dad and mom, and things are good in our household, and I had a sweet coat, and you know, that kind of thing. And some of the brothers feel really upset, uh, bad about what they've done, and so they decide that rather than letting him die there, they would sell him into slavery instead. And so uh, a few days later, the slave traders come through, they sell him to the slave traders, and he's on his way to Egypt. And you're there with him, and you say, don't worry, Joseph, the best is yet to come. He's starting to doubt you at this point, right? You know, it's like, yeah, right, the best is yet to come. I mean, it was bad enough to be in the well, but now I'm being sold into slavery. And he arrives in Egypt, and he's sold to a, an individual named Potiphar, who was a wealthy uh, part of the uh, Egyptian government. And uh, in that situation, he's a slave in Potiphar's household, but God gives him favor. And uh, Potiphar recognizes the skills and abilities that Joseph has, and he emerges as the... Uh, as the, the chief servant within the household. And he has access to everything. And Potiphar's wife notices him as well. And she desires to seduce him. And he, he recognizes, he says, hey, listen, your husband has given me access to everything, but not to you. And she is not to be put off. One day when there's nobody else in the household, she tries to seduce him again. 
And in running away from her, he leaves his cloak behind. And she decides to make up a story about him. And she makes up the story that he had tried to sexually assault her. And uh, the response to that, Potiphar becomes angry and throws him in prison. But don't worry, you're there with him. And you're like, Joseph, <laughs> it's okay. You know, the best is yet to come, right? And so there's Joseph, he's in jail, and jail's there, they're not like the one Ivan works in. They're, you know, they're, this was tough going, right, where, the, where this was. And while he was there in prison, um, Pharaoh, uh, who was the king of, of Egypt, two of his servants end up in prison with Joseph. And they happen to have dreams that they can't interpret. And Joseph, through the power of God, is able to interpret those dreams for these two servants. And as an outcome of that, one of the servants is executed, and the other servant is returned to a place in the household of Pharaoh. And he says, last thing before he leaves, hey, I'm going to remember you when I get back to Pharaoh's household. He says this to Joseph, but he doesn't. But you're there with him. You're there with Joseph. Don't worry, Joseph. The best is yet to come. You know, it's only been a few years here. Don't worry about it. The best is yet to come. And uh, a few years, a little time later, uh, Pharaoh has a dream, and he's not able to understand the dream. And the servant and his wise men don't understand it either, but the servant remembers this Hebrew who had been in prison with him that was able to interpret dreams through the power of his God. And he says, uh, Pharaoh, there's this person in prison that you need to talk to. And so Joseph is pulled from prison, brought to Pharaoh, and he interprets the dream. And he says there's going to be a time of plenty within this land. It's going to be followed by a time of famine. It's really important that during the time of plenty that we save, 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 so that we have stuff that we can use during the time of famine. And Pharaoh recognizes that and says, oh, that's a great idea. And you're just the man to be able to fulfill and manage this project for me. And so you're there with him, though, and you say to Pharaoh, see, I told you the best is yet to come. And Joseph looks at you and says, the best is yet to come? I'm here in this godless country as a servant, as a slave still, uh, propelling and saving this nation that I could care less about that hates my people. This is the best is yet to come. But now we move into the time of famine, and the famine spreads not just in Egypt, but beyond Egypt as well, into all the surrounding nations. In fact, where Joseph's dad and brothers all lived in Canaan, they were experiencing the famine as well. And in there, they heard that there was food in Egypt, so they go to Egypt to buy grain. And Joseph recognizes his brothers when they arrive, and there's this miraculous story that uh, he's able to save his family uh, from the famine because of his position that God's placed him in. And you're like, see, I told you, the best is yet to come. But I'm telling you guys, that was probably 40 years of Joseph's life. Second point that we have about the best is yet to come. Our timeline is not God's timeline. We serve an eternal God. We serve a God who exists outside of time and space. It should not surprise us that the timeline we would want, right? I want things fixed by this afternoon. I want things you know, better by tomorrow, right? That that timeline would not be God's timeline. Third point. This comes from the New Testament. We see this. Uh, this is going to be in uh, the book of Mark, chapter 8. We're going to read this, 8, verse 27, down to 33. 
Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say I am? Well, they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples and reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. So we love it when we think about the fact that Peter recognizes Jesus for who he is, right? The Christ. In fact, the, the Greek word Christos, Christ, translates the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is Messiah. It means the anointed one of God. So Peter recognizes Jesus for who he is, right? The Messiah. But he clearly has a wrong understanding of that by what we see in the, the verses that follow. And that was very much a, a reality of that early uh, time period of the New Testament because it was really influenced by historical events that had gone on during what's called the intertestamental period, the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So a guy named Alexander the Great uh, was a Greek general, eventual king, conquers the known land of that time period, but he dies at a really young age, and his kingdom is divided into four kingdoms. And two of those kingdoms sort of fought over the land of Israel. One were the Ptolemies, who were based out of Egypt, and the other was the Seleucids that were based out of Syria. And at one time, the Seleucids were in control of the land of Israel, and there was a king of the Seleucids named Antiochus Epiphanes. And he had it out for the Jewish religion and the Israelite people, and he decided to, um, he decided to antagonize them by actually sacrificing a pig on the altar in the temple. So it defiled the temple. It uh, mocked the Jewish religion. And as a response to that, there's a rise up of a rebellion within the Jewish people led by the Maccabees, a, a father and, and a group of sons. And it led to a period of, of military success where they are able to throw this group out of their country and establish an independent nation for a time. It was pretty short-lived because soon after that, the Romans came and they sort of conquered the known land. So as we go into the New Testament period, there was this real understanding of the idea of a Messiah being a military political leader who would throw the Romans out, sort of looking back to how that period had been for the Maccabees. And even aspirationally, they wanted to restore this uh, idea of the, the glory days of Israel, which had been when David had been king, and they had sort of had the most territory they had ever held. So their understanding that Peter had, that most of the people had at that time period, was this idea of the Messiah as this military, political figure that would give them freedom from the Romans. But God had a very different plan. His plan was that his son would be the means and mechanism for the ushering in of the kingdom of God. This expression, kingdom of God, shows up a number of times in the New Testament. In fact, 32 times in the book of Luke alone. So it's, it's, it's a big concept, a concept we don't typically talk about a lot today. But the kingdom of God is a countercultural, 
revolution that begins with the hearts and minds of individuals who recognize what God has done on our behalf through the gift of his son. The fact that without a savior, without an ability to please God on our own, we would be lost, broken, and just suffering in what was the reality of our world. And God made a way through the gift of his son, right? He sent his son to earth. Jesus dies on the cross, takes our sin, pays the price that we have to, and when we accept that gift, we're restored. We become part of this countercultural revolution known as the kingdom of God. And that kingdom of God is different than the kingdoms of man. It has nothing to do with military and political power. It has everything to do with, this, uh, with the fact of his Holy Spirit working in us, empowering us to live out our faith as salt and light in the world around us, of winsomely engaging this world and sharing that love of Christ with others, of being the hands and feet of Christ in the world that we're in. And something radical happens through that in this countercultural revolution known as the kingdom of God. This is my third point, and it relates to the best is yet to come. God is all about his kingdom building work. If you want to understand what the best is yet to come, then understand this concept of the kingdom of God, the fact that he is all about building his kingdom in this world. And it's not like any kingdom of man. Fourth and last point that I want to make. We live in a broken, fallen, messed up world. So when, when man chose to sin, to disobey God, back in the very beginning, the world fell because of it. It fractured the relationships between man and man, between man and our environment. So we have things today, disease, mental illness, uh, suffering, pain, tears, fractured relationships, difficulties, all of these challenges come because of the fallen nature of this world. This is not the way that God intended it to be. It's a result of the choices that we've made as human beings. And that situation is going to continue until Christ returns someday. So sometimes when we talk about the best is yet to come, the reality of the, the complete problems that we're in are not going to get fixed until eternity. When there's a new heaven and a new earth, and we, I'm think, I thought about that couple that I shared the story about in the beginning. Someday, they're going to be restored to in glory with this little child that they had. What a joyful moment that will be, to be there together at the throne of God saying, worthy is the lamb. To be uh, in, in worshiping Christ in that moment, how powerful that will be. But sometimes that is the hope that we have that the best is yet to come. The real problems of this world will get fixed in eternity someday when there's a new heaven and a new earth and Jesus Christ reigns and the world is the way the world was intended to be. So as we look about this, think about this, don't fall into the trap of thinking the best is yet to come means my material success, my, uh, the way I want it to be in the timeline that I want in this, you know, this way of, of thinking about things in sort of an earthly uh, kind of perspective. Let's recognize the fact that God is about bringing glory to himself. So as we think about the future of our church and the best is yet to come, it's going to be done in such a way that he gets the glory. And the timeline is going to be his timeline, not our timeline. 
And it's going to be about his kingdom-building work of seeing people come to faith and relationship in him. And we know, ultimately, the real best is yet to come is the story of eternity. Let's pray. God, we love you. We're so grateful to you, Lord, for what you do on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for this crazy kingdom-building work that you've done. And a little bit like the story of Gideon, you've chosen us, just regular people, the least likely of people to be chosen. And yet you've chosen to work through us through the power of your spirit as your hands and feet in this world around us, Lord. May we be faithful in doing that. May we see your kingdom uh, work be done. And Lord, we do hold to the promise that the best is yet to come, and we believe it'll be give you glory, Lord. It'll be about your kingdom building work. May it happen uh, soon, Lord. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.